He will survive the government shutdown if there is one, but it takes some planning and a little knowledge of what to expect. Former Postal Service Manager Abe Grungold is a veteran of more than one government lapse in appropriations, and he joins me now with some advice. And Abe, you have lived through more than one federal government shutdown, haven't you? Yes. If you are a federal employee and you're going to be facing a federal shutdown, you need to prepare both financially and mentally for one. Because during my 36 years of federal service, I experienced four of them lasting at least a week. And the last one was 35 days. And this can be a very stressful period for a federal employee, and you need to be prepared. Yeah, I think the big difficulty or one of the major difficulties is even knowing you're going to get paid at the end of it doesn't help with the situation of a month or so when you don't get paid and you've got to still live through that period till you do get paid. True. You can be paid if your agency is going to allow it. But there is a possibility that you won't be paid. But to experience a federal shutdown, you cannot take annual leave. You cannot take sick leave. And you basically have to be available to receive the email or phone call from your agency to go back to work. So you can't just jump on a cruise ship for a week and have some fun. You have to be available and and see if you have to report back to work. Yeah, a lot of people say, oh, gosh, they get a vacation and they'll get paid for it at the end. But in fact, they have to be standing by for resumation of federal work. And yet they can't do any work while they are home. You're not allowed to work, correct? That's correct. You're not allowed to turn on your government phone. You're not allowed to use your government computer. And all your assignments or duties that you are working on on a day-to-day, regardless of how urgent they are, they come to a full stop. So you basically have to be prepared to go back to work when they do call you back. And getting back to the pay issue, if you're not getting paid, you know, for those at the senior executive level or the higher GS levels and so on, maybe high and scheduled, you know, 38, Title 38, if you're a high-level medical employee, you probably have means and savings to tide you over till those paychecks still come through. What about, and did you know people that are maybe a little bit more paycheck to paycheck because they are not at that level of pay to begin with? Yes. Unfortunately, Tom, due to the high inflation that we've been experiencing the last year or two, a lot of federal employees are living from paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, it would be wise if you had three to six months of cash reserves on hand to pay your bills. But there are a lot of federal employees that cannot handle a thousand dollar medical bill or a thousand dollar automotive repair bill. They don't have that ability in their budget. And what about the psychological aspect of it? I mean, what does it feel like to say, hey, guys, gals, go home? Don't turn on the computer, but wait for the phone call. And I guess you go back far enough to have had a BlackBerry when some agencies would collect them in a basket to make sure you didn't do email. Well, Tom, it is stressful. I remember during the Obama administration, I was listening to the TV every day 
waiting to hear when we're supposed to return to work. That is the worst thing that you can do is listening to the television all day. I think the best is just to listen to it in the evening when you do hear that the federal shutdown is over. You need to keep yourself busy. And busy means exercising, cleaning out a closet. I did a lot of home projects during the 35-day shutdown during the Trump administration, and I accomplished a lot of things. You must stay busy because it wears on you day after day. And I can recall getting a paycheck during that 35 days, and the paycheck said zero dollars and zero cents. And let me tell you something, Tom, that is a punch in the stomach when you see that. And I got several of those. I think that's something I would probably frame and hang on the wall afterwards. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a veteran of several federal shutdowns, retired federal manager, also the owner of AG Financial Services. And what about the debtors, you know, the health insurance bills that you have to pay and so on? Did you find that they tend to maybe be lenient with the schedule of payments, knowing that they're serving a federal customer who will be back at work eventually, but can't pay at this moment? Well, certainly your health insurance through your FEHB will continue to be paid through your federal agency. But if you come across some medical bills, you can be put on a payment plan, and you can certainly tell the medical provider, look, I'm a federal employee. They see you have federal health insurance, and you can explain to them that you're experiencing a federal shutdown. This happened quite a bit with uh, creditors. I believe a lot of the utility companies were giving uh, a pass to people if they couldn't make their utility bills for that month. They gave them a little leeway until they got back to work. Yes, you can notify these companies and say, look, I'm a federal employee. I'm, I'm in a situation and I will pay my bills. I just can't pay them immediately. Sure. And what about the possibility of getting temporary work during the shutdown? I think there's mixed guidance coming out on that one also. Well, that is a very touchy subject because federal employees are supposed to get permission from their agency if they are doing any type of side work or side business. You have to get approval because you have to make sure there's no conflict of interest. But I remember I did do some part-time work during the Trump administration, certainly with my own business, but I also did some acting work during those times. And yeah, wherever you can make some money, there are ways that you can provide some financial income for yourself. I have some tips and there are some things that you can do immediately if you're experiencing a federal shutdown, both simple steps and drastic measures, as I call them. And what are a couple of the simple steps? Well, the simple steps are very easy. It's eliminate all unnecessary expenditures like going out to lunch, dinner, Starbucks, and movie theater, lottery tickets, similar types of what I call entertainment type expenses. If you can cut those out 
immediately, you can build up a cash reserve quite quickly to carry you through a week or maybe two weeks. Yeah, so put now, that $5 for Starbucks or what does a movie cost nowadays? About 20 bucks, I think. Put that into a jar. That doesn't include the hot dog and the popcorn and all that. I mean, it builds up. But if you can eliminate those type of day-to-day expenditures, you can have some uh, extra cash. There are also some drastic measures that you can take such as cutting off your cable or streaming service or looking for some old savings bonds that you have been given as a gift and cash those in, as well as possibly selling some items that are lying around the house. You could have a garage sale and get rid of those things that you need to get rid of and build up some cash that way. Another very important way to get out of this predicament is taking out a TSP loan. But that could take a week to 10 days to do. And no penalty if you plan to pay it right back? Well, there is a $50 application fee, and you can get a personal loan quite quickly, a week or 10 days, and you can do it online. Uh, And that is if you're eligible to make a TSP loan. You have to have a certain level balance in your account. But that is like the most drastic measure you want to do. And you certainly would pay back your TSP loan, and you can do that quite quickly or on a schedule. Got it. Maybe we should call you Abe Scroungegold. (laughs) Well, Tom, really, you know, I have thought of these things even before I was a federal employee. And while I was a federal employee, I I said, you know, there's a lot of things I can get rid of, old family jewelry, things that are lying around the house. I sold a lot of my daughter's toys on Craigslist and I got rid of a lot of things during a federal shutdown. So it's almost like a spring cleaning and it puts money in your pocket. So, you know, it's really just a way to clean house sure. and build up a cash reserve. All right. Maybe skip an alimony payment and see how fast that turns up. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. The Federal Drive won't shut down. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways. And that is at my about 25th year of service, 
um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders not having to hide who I was at work made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills 
uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So... I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. 
You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision it's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who... I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that 
the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.